0: I had the humbling experience in 2021 of writing a resume. Uh, Believe it or not, I'd made it through 25 years of post-schooling life without ever having to write one. Uh, But we were trying to get back overseas uh, to our missions work from the U.S., and and that meant pursuing all kinds of avenues. Uh, A Christian businessman had taken pity uh, on me, uh, and was trying to see if something would work with with one of his businesses. So he asked me to send my resume to his office in the capital city, Uh, but he he said this to me. He said, if you could leave off the spiritual stuff, seminary and, and, and ministry and that sort of thing, and then he said this, be creative if you have to. Now, I should have immediately known that a resume is not a good place to work on your creative writing, but I decided that I would dive in and do my best. So I wrote down my early schooling uh, and then some rather successful, in my view, early fast food experience. Uh, I was very good at uh, putting together McDonald's cheeseburgers could rack a a rack of 12 in under 30 seconds, but I wrote down my early part-time work, and then the wheels kind of fell off the process. I was staring at a lot of white space, no idea what to do as I tried to ponder what might make me attractive in the world of business. Some of you are living in the world of resumes right now, maybe looking for employment, Maybe thinking about changing careers. Uh, When you're looking for employment, there's a certain logic at work. You you try to emphasize your assets and minimize your liabilities. You you hope the hirer is going to see that you'd be valuable for what is needed. And because you're being evaluated, you want to put your best foot forward. If you think about it, a whole bunch of our lives are spent trying to qualify for things. We spend our, our youth trying to make the grade, get the score, pass the class. This moves into the age of career where we're trying to make ourselves marketable or, or keep ourselves marketable. And along the way, our fear sort of rises that we might fail to do so, that we might be found lacking. The fear of being unqualified, being undeserving, and so left out in the cold. I felt that feeling rising up in me as I stared at my blank resume. Nobody likes the feeling of not having a best foot to put forward. I don't know how much of that you can relate to in the world of school or, or jobs right now, but, but that kind of thinking can spill over into the rest of life, can't it? And of concern for us this morning is to ask how much of that thinking spills over into how we relate to God. Do we try to write spiritual resumes? Well, to get at that, we've got to ask ourselves some questions, right? If I ask you if you're a good person, could you give me a brief profile? If I ask you if you're a good church member, do you have some answers ready? How about a good husband or a good wife, a good parent, a good son or daughter? Uh, I'm not saying that there's no way to evaluate those things, certainly there are. I'm asking whether you go through life assessing your qualifications and then relating them to how God thinks about you. In our study of Exodus, we've come this morning to a very interesting text because at first glance, it appears entirely unnecessary. The stage has already been set for this climactic showdown between God and Pharaoh. God has announced his intention to deliver his people, and and Pharaoh has thrown down the gauntlet saying, who is the Lord? And then he not only says, you're not leaving, but he says, you're a bunch of lazy bums. You're idle. Not letting you go. He increases the pressure on the people to the point where they're desperate. Uh, they're actually, I think, ready to rebel against their leadership. So after all of that, we're, we're ready for things to move along and see what's going to happen next. Instead, the, the narrative before us is, is going to pause, and it's going to focus on the character and the qualifications of Moses, the leader. Uh, let's review the man's credentials. Ask what qualifies him to lead this great task of being God's spokesman, God's mediator. And what we find is that as God works through his servants, he doesn't evaluate resumes the same way we do. So the main idea of our text this morning, you may want to write this down. If you're following along in your ministry guide, you're about to say, that's different. Uh, That's because I was up late last night studying the text further. But the main idea... Write this down. A good and gracious God uses an unqualified servant to fulfill an unflinching promise. A good and gracious God uses an unqualified servant to fulfill an unflinching promise. And we'll think about that in three points. Number one, an unqualified servant. An unqualified servant. That'll be verses 10 through 13. And verses 28 to 30 of chapter 6. We'll consider, secondly, an unflinching promise. An unflinching promise. That'll be verses 14 to 27. And then third and finally, we think about a good and gracious God. A good and gracious God. That'll be chapter 7, verses 1 through 7. It's my prayer that our time in God's Word this morning will give us a fresh vision of the grace of God. So turn in your copy of God's word. You can find it in the pew rack in front of you and open it up to Exodus chapter 6. We'll begin in verse 10 as we consider first an unqualified servant. So the Lord said to Moses, Go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, The people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. Now, we should think about this as a hinge section summarizing the first six chapters of Exodus and then looking ahead to the great showdown that I mentioned between God and Pharaoh. And structurally, I want, to see, I want you to see that there's a, there's a sandwich here, what we could call a sandwich. You know, a sandwich works because you have two pieces of bread and some good stuff in the middle. Uh, well, there, there's a sandwich of sorts that, that structurally helps us. So we just read 10 through 13. I want you to skip down in the text to verses 28 to 30. Verses 28 to 30, and notice how similar they are. Verse 28, on the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, the Lord said to Moses, I am the Lord, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. But Moses said to the Lord, behold, I am of uncircumcised lips, how will Pharaoh listen to me? Basically, we have the same three things repeated. The the Lord's command to go and tell Pharaoh, Moses' complaint that he's of uncircumcised lips, and then the statement that Pharaoh's not going to listen to him. So so this is important. The, The sandwich bread here sets things up for us. Moses doesn't want to do this. Now now let's stop and consider uh, where we've been thus far in Exodus, because we've heard this from Moses before. We we could call him the reluctant prophet, right? Uh, When God appeared to him at the burning bush in chapter 3, told him he's going to send him to Pharaoh, Moses said, who am I that I should do this? Well, God answers and says that he's going to be with him. Moses says, the Israelites are not going to listen to me. So God gives him confirming signs, remember? Then Moses has something else. He says, I'm not eloquent. I can't speak well. So God says, okay, I'll put the words in your mouth. And Moses just doesn't give up. He never gives up. He finally says, oh, Lord, send someone else. And and in that whole process, we see the patience of God, don't we? I mean, even at that point, it says the Lord's anger was kindled against Moses. But God says, okay, I'm going to give you Aaron as your spokesperson to help you. Incredibly gracious, patient. After a brief encouraging interaction with the Israelites where they listen to him, he he goes to Pharaoh and says, let the people go. And then things go really bad. Pharaoh escalates the the pressure and the persecution, and and then we find at the end of chapter 5, Moses is back in front of God, and he says, why did you ever call me in the first place? So here in our summary section that we're looking at, on the eve of this great showdown, the reluctant prophet is back at it again, right? Uh, Here is actually a new complaint when he says, I am of uncircumcised lips, Scholars are not exactly sure what the phrase means. You you may remember back in chapter 4, God almost kills Moses because he hasn't circumcised his son like he's supposed to. Uh, Moses has surely realized that circumcision signifies being set apart for God, being a recipient of God's promises. And here he's basically saying, I don't think I'm that guy. I don't think I'm the recipient of the transforming Grace of God. So what do we make of this? Well, first, let's, let's consider Moses' problem here. What, what's wrong with Moses? I want us to notice that he consistently places his attention in two places. So first, his attention is regularly on other people. Okay, He's afraid of other people. Sometimes it's the Israelites, they won't listen to me. Sometimes it's Pharaoh, Pharaoh won't listen to me. We're going to see it throughout the book. He's alternately afraid of what one or the other is going to do to him. The Bible's term for this is fear of man, meaning placing ultimate weight and concern on what other people think Or on what other people can do to us, rather than ultimate weight and concern on God, on what He thinks, on what He can do. So, Proverbs 29, verse 25, the fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. There's a wonderful book by a man named Ed Welch called When People Are Big and God Is Small. And his premise is that the bigger people loom in your view, the the smaller God will be in your view. If people fill your vision, if they're all that you can see, then, then how can you see God for who he is? He notes that one of the effects is that we can end up more concerned with looking stupid, fear of man, than with acting sinfully, fear of God. We should ask ourselves this morning, are there people in our lives right now who loom larger than God to us? We fear them. We, we stand in awe of them. We, we desire their approval so much that serving God, obeying God, is a distant second for us. Is there fear of man in your life? Moses, first of all, is focused on other people. We can see that. But the second Person that Moses is focused on is himself. There's this pattern where uh, God tells him what to do, and then Moses responds by telling God something about himself. You, you can see it there in verse 12. If you look at the, the pronouns, he says me, and then he says I, and then if you look down at verse 30, it's the reverse. First, it's I, and then me. God, I'm not the right guy. What's in me is not good enough. This kind of thinking is the fruit of personal resume writing. When you and I walk around constantly trying to make sure that we measure up, we forget that we're supposed to have faith in God, not ourselves. Notice when he says, Pharaoh will not listen to me, he's thinking of himself as needing to persuade Pharaoh. Uh, Like God said... I've got this diplomatic mission. I'm I'm having trouble with with Egypt, and I need you to go to Pharaoh and figure out what's going to convince him. What's a good diplomatic strategy, Moses? Is that what God told Moses to do? Moses is taking on himself far too much. He's supposed to go and speak in obedience to what God had said and leave the rest to him. Now, I think we do this same sort of thing often, beloved. Parents, we, we can fall into the trap of thinking that how our kids turn out is up to us. It's not, you know. To be sure, we've been called to teach them the truth, to, to model a life of repentance, faith, to point them in the right direction, and to pray for them. None of that ensures how they're going to turn out. That's beyond our pay grade. And if you start trusting in yourself and in your parenting, you're headed for frustration, despair. We can apply this wrong sort of thinking to our evangelism, right? I mean, God has called you and I to be witnesses for Him, to, to speak about what He's done in our lives. And to tell other people, with with, with our lives, how we live our lives, but also with our words. Uh, It should be a regular prayer request that we have. Pray for me in my evangelism. Pray that I would be bold in speaking up with coworkers, with neighbors, with friends. It's not an easy thing to do, but it's, it's something we should be trying to do. But oh, how disastrous to begin thinking that the conversion of other people is up to us. It's not. We speak what is true and we leave the results to him. Similarly, those of us who preach and teach God's word in whatever format we do, we are simply God's mailman. That's a great way to think about ourselves. We deliver mail. We don't write it. We certainly can't control what someone does when they receive it. We pray for God to work through it in the lives of youth or teens or fathers as you lead family devotions in your homes. Our faith can't be in ourselves. It should be in God. So I think we can learn from Moses' negative example here. When people are big. God is small. But we need to return to a larger question. It's the question I was asking all week as I meditated on this text. Why is it here? Why, on the eve of a great battle, would you review and record the fact that your leader doesn't want to be there and he doesn't like the battle plan? This just doesn't seem like a good idea. Why review a resume that isn't just blank, but invalidating? And for that, we should consider our second point, an unflinching promise, an unflinching promise. And let's pick up the text and read it, starting in verse 14. We'll read all the way down to verse 27. These are the heads of their fathers' houses, the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, Hanak, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi. These are the clans of Reuben, the sons of Simeon, Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jakin, Zohar, and Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman. These are the clans of Simeon. These are the names of the sons of Levi, according to their generations, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari, the years of the life of Levi being 137 years. The sons of Gershon, Libni, and Shimei by their clans. The sons of Kohath. Amram, Ishar, Hebron, and Uziel, the years of the life of Kohath being 133 years. The sons of Merari, Mali, and Mushi, these are the clans of the Levites according to their generations. Amram took as his wife Jochebed, his father's sister, and she bore him Aaron and Moses, the years of the life of Amram being 137 years. The sons of Ishar, Korah, Nepheg, and Zichri, the sons of Uziel, Mishael, Elzaphan, and Sithri. Aaron took as his wife Elishaba, the daughter of Abinadab, and the sister of Nation. She bore him Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. The sons of Korah, Asir, Elkanah, and Abiaseth. These are the clans of the Korahites. Eleazar, Aaron's son, took as his wife one of the daughters of Putiel, and she bore him Phinehas. These are the heads of the fathers' houses of the Levites. By their clans. These are the Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, Bring out the people of Israel from the land of Egypt by their hosts. It was they who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing out the people of Israel from Egypt. This Moses and this Aaron. Now, to modern readers, this is not an ideal time for a genealogy. Some of you are thinking there's never a good time for a genealogy. Uh, I could ask you in your Bible reading plan, what do you do when you get to a genealogy? It's like true confession Have You skip it, right? I know a lot of us skip the genealogies. Uh, well, to ancient readers, if we're raising the question of qualifications, of credentials, of resume, that's a perfect time for a genealogy. Now, I think, I think there are four questions you can kind of add to your, your Bible reading repertoire to become a better reader of genealogies four questions you should always ask number 1 where does it start number 2 what line does it follow number 3 where does it end and number 4 what unnecessary stuff is included okay so so let's let's ask those questions first where does it start well it starts with the sons of Israel you see that in verse 14 Reuben and Simeon And then Levi, the first three sons of Israel. This is a genealogy tracing back to Jacob, who was renamed Israel. And so it connects with the promises made to the patriarchs, namely a a promised land and promised blessing, blessing that will ultimately extend to to the whole earth. So we're being told that our seemingly poorly qualified leaders actually connect right back to the promises of God. So that's where it starts. Second, what line does it follow? Well, if you track it, you notice it starts walking through Israel's sons until it gets to Levi, and then it zeroes in on Levi's sons, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. Then out of those, it picks Kohath, because he fathers Amram, who is Moses and Aaron's dad. So, so this genealogy is confirming that Moses and Aaron are in Levi's line, which later will inherit the priesthood. So, perhaps that's part of the point. It it underlines that these two guys are qualified as priestly intermediaries between God and his people. Third, where does it end? Well, interestingly, after Moses and Aaron, it it tracks down to Phinehas. Can you see that in verse 25? That's Aaron's grandson. Uh, Lots of other descendants are completely blanked out, they're just not included. And I assume it goes this far because at the time Moses is writing this history, his his brother's grandsons are alive. But Phineas is almost certainly emphasized because of what he does in Numbers 25. Uh, Israel at that point has started mixing worship of the one true God with with Canaanite religion, uh, uh, mostly worship of Baal, a a fertility god. It included uh, temple cultic prostitution. And in this this one climactic scene, Phineas actually sees an Israelite with a a Midianite prostitute, part of this this Baal worship, and in a a moment of righteous zeal, he kills them both. We're told there that because of the zeal of Phineas, the, the plague that has broken out among the people as God's judgment is stopped, and the people's sin is atoned for. So these leaders, Moses and Aaron, They trace back to the promises, they're in the priestly line, and whether we can see it right now or not, they're connected to the kind of zeal for God that gives us Phineas. Fourth question, what unnecessary stuff does it include? Well, lots of interesting things. Remember, Moses is writing this. And he can blank out anything he wants. Let me, let me ask you a rhetorical question. Is there anything in your family history that you might not want to share on social media? Right? Yeah, I assume so. Okay, it's a rhetorical question. Don't say yes out loud. Uh, if you're Moses, you can blank anything you want. But look at, look at what he includes. Verse 15. Simeon married a Canaanite woman who bore Shaul. That's that's the unfaithfulness and intermarriage that plagues God's people throughout the Pentateuch. It records that. It's unnecessary. In verse 24, he he records the the sons of Korah. That's not necessary for the line he's following. Oh, those guys led a rebellion later against Moses, and they get struck down by the Lord. Similarly, we... Let's make sure we include the two sons of Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, who ignored the worship protocol that we're going to read about it later in Exodus, and they also get struck dead by the Lord. So what is this about? Well, I hope you can see that on the one hand, we're being told that these are the right leaders. They're in the line of promise. God intends to use them as priests, as intermediaries between God and man, and they will indeed accomplish his purposes. On the other hand, Moses, Aaron, deeply flawed people in a long line of deeply flawed people. And this is the consistent biblical pattern, isn't it? To get all the stuff recorded down in black and white. Genesis did that with Abraham, right? this prototype of faith in the unseen God. Twice he's so fearful that he allows his wife to be taken into a king's royal harem just to save his own skin. David, the greatest king in Israel's history, forerunner of the Messiah, the Bible makes sure to narrate in detail that he was an adulterer, and a murderer. Jonah, the prophet, saw the greatest revival, the greatest spiritual awakening in Old Testament history. He did not even want to go in the first place. And that continues into the New Testament as we read the Gospels and the the 12 chosen disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. They're regularly presented as unbelieving. They're bickering rivals who are slow to accept what is right in front of their face. So beloved, this is a consistent biblical pattern. And, And we should note, it's exactly the opposite of what we run into in the world. There are no companies that delineate the failings of their CEO on their website. Show me one. I, I, just, I, don't, I don't think there is one. You, you, you don't write a, an honest resume in that sense. I don't mean that you lie on your resume, but, but if somebody came to you and said, ah, I'm writing a resume and I kind of have a new strategy. There are templates online and everything, but I thought I'd have two sections, one my strengths and one my weaknesses. Just tell them the things I'm not good at. You're like, friend, I don't, I don't think you understand how the game is played. Well, the Bible's playing a different game, isn't it? God doesn't call the qualified. Because he's going to call the qualified, he have no one to call. It's not by works, but by him who calls. Moses publishes his own flawed resume to highlight the grace of God. What other answer is there? Now, let's think about how this should affect the believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, This should be a great relief to us. Everywhere in life, we're being asked to put our best foot forward. It's how school works, it's how employment works, it's how social media companies have become such enormous companies. It might be how your annual bonus is being calculated right now, if you're a civil servant, from what I understand. But that's not how you and I stand. The God who knows us knows we don't have a best foot to put forward. This is how the Apostle Paul put it. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. See, Apostle Paul, the chief of sinners, he goes on. You want my resume? I was once a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a man of violence, but I received mercy. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Friend, is that how you see yourself this morning, as a recipient of the grace of God that has overflowed to you with the faith and love that is in Jesus Christ? One of the ways that you know that grace makes sense to you is that you stop publishing your successes and you start publishing your failures. You actually rejoice in them to the extent that they magnify the grace of God. You, you hear that in many of the baptismal testimonies. I was a hopeless sinner. God was gracious to me. We could ask ourselves if we're defensive when somebody points out something wrong with us. We shouldn't be if we understand grace. So brothers and sisters, take a deep breath. Relax. Relax. When you hear the voice of accusation that says, Who are you to serve God? Who are you to call yourself a Christian? Who who are you to work as an ambassador of reconciliation? Say, Yes, exactly. Who am I? Magnify the grace of God. We serve a God who's pleased to call not the worthy, but the unworthy, not the qualified, but the unqualified. It's not by works but by him who calls. Otherwise, what are we doing here this morning? Are you good? I'm not. But there's grace. So consider your calling, brothers and sisters. God chooses the weak, the foolish, the sinful to magnify himself, not us. It was his unflinching promise to do so. Not to us, but to your name be glory. An unqualified servant, an unflinching promise. Let's Consider third and finally a good and gracious God. Pick up the text in chapter 7, verse 1. And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you, Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Now, essentially here, God does not answer Moses' objections any longer. What what he does is restate the facts of what is true and what's going to happen. Notice there, verse 1, he says, I've made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. So though Pharaoh doesn't believe in Yahweh, he's going to see that whatever Moses says actually happens. So in that sense, he's going to be like God to Pharaoh. Verse two, Moses and Aaron will speak all that God tells them. God knows this. Verse three, Pharaoh's heart, already hard heart, will be further hardened by God, so that even as the signs and wonders multiply, he's not going to listen. Verse four, we're told that God will do two things at once. As he lays his hand of judgment, great acts of judgment on Egypt, he will bring out his hosts. The children of Israel. And then verse 5, the result is that the Egyptians will know that he is the Lord. On some level, they will believe. Perhaps savingly, perhaps not. But they will know that he is the Lord. So God here simply states what's going to happen. And then in verse 6, we're told that Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. The final verse gives us a time stamp. Moses was 80 and Aaron 83. Uh, maybe again emphasizing the weakness of the instrument that God uses. They're not in the prime of life, perhaps, but they are the perfect age to magnify God for who he is. You know, it, it's, it's worth stopping and considering how the senior saints among us have this same opportunity. Uh, as they come... Even in Gather With Us, they're testifying in a powerful way about what they believe, what they've seen to be true about this God. Um, All of us should be grateful to them for the testimony that they can give about who he is. Your being here is a great encouragement to us. Now, in terms of the narrative, uh, one of the things that's useful to remember is that the Bible doesn't unfold the way a movie does. Uh, they, they can make movies from Exodus, they have, right? <clears throat> but they can't do it by following the biblical text. Because all the suspense is taken out of, out here by the fact that God knows the end from the beginning. So I can't get you guys to come back next week. Uh, you know, nothing Eugene is going to preach is going to be a surprise. Like Here's the whole plot. So this is what's going to happen, this is what I'm going to do. No suspense. We're reminded that God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. He says to Isaiah, My counsel shall stand. I will accomplish all my purpose. And it's the delight of God's people to remember that he's the king. God's in control. You might be in a a dark time right now. The Israelites certainly were. Remember, it's their hard situation, the, the brutality of what they're experiencing. It made it hard for them to listen I appreciated Eugene last week just honestly saying there are going to be times where we don't want to listen. There are going to be times where we don't listen because of what we are suffering. But that doesn't change the truth. If you're in a difficult place right now, reflect on the fact that God knows what is happening and he's ordering all things after the counsel of his will. Rest in that. So, God is in control, but what does he intend to do? Well, notice, as I said, that these two things are happening at once. I I will lay my hand on Egypt, and I will bring out my people by great acts of judgment. Some have proposed that God's glory in salvation through judgment is actually the the one sentence theme of the whole Bible. But for our purposes, I, I want us to just see that the two are linked. The Israelites cannot be saved without Egypt and Pharaoh being judged. And that's what makes Exodus an intentional picture of the greater salvation that came through Jesus Christ. The ultimate enemy is not flesh and blood, as it was in some sense for the Israelites. For us, it's sin, it's Satan, it's death itself. And so what we have in this glorious modulation to a a higher key is a Redeemer who would come as a man. Not one who was flawed and sinful like Moses. Not one who needed redemption of himself. And not one who was a reluctant redeemer, but a willing one. He was not of uncircumcised lips, but he was set apart from birth. And in his death on the cross, God the Father laid his hand of judgment on him. Not the enemy of his children but on his child himself. Through that great act of judgment, his people are led out of slavery. So good and gracious God. His goodness requires the judgment. If he were not to judge, he would not be good. His graciousness motivates the sacrifice. I was saying in the first point that, that Moses' problem was that his view of people was too big. And his view of God was too small. I think somewhere along the line, his view of God grew. At least he listens to what God says and believes here. That's the statement in verse six. Moses and Aaron did so, they did just as the Lord commanded them. That's the last word on their attitude until the other side of the Exodus. They did what God said. I think we should see it as a fresh vision of who God is his sovereignty his goodness his grace so many of our problems are solved when we see God this way what makes the christian single submit themselves to marrying only in the lord what makes us submit our sexual lives to him doing just as the lord commands us what makes the person who is who is thrown off the biblical balance of work and home and church? What makes them take a step back in their career so that they can be faithful in all that God has called them to do? What makes you and I confident to speak up in evangelism and share the good news with other people? A desire for a better spiritual resume? That won't do it. You've got to wad the resume up and throw it in the trash can but a fresh vision of the goodness and the graciousness of God. That's something else entirely. A good and gracious God uses unqualified servants to fulfill an unflinching promise. That's what happened in the Exodus. That's what happens whenever God uses you and I. But it's worth remembering that God's grace in using unqualified servants would not have been possible if it were not for a fully qualified servant, the one who came to do all his Father's will. What a great Savior. What a great salvation. Oh, the depth of the riches, the wisdom, and knowledge of God. Let's pray together. Father, you've been so good to us in so many ways Uh, We gather to rejoice in that great salvation and pray and ask that you would use us even as undeserving servants uh, made deserving only because of what you've done for us in Christ. So we pray in his name, amen.